Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you and enjoy. My preference as a priest ministering to all of you and preaching on Sundays would always be maybe to tell a joke this morning or make you laugh and just to spread joy and peace. But once in a while, it is my duty to point out something serious. And today I want to talk about something tragic that is happening in our country. No, it's not just the ongoing crisis in our own church and those failures with respect to the abuse scandal, which are bad enough. There is another threat to children that has reemerged. State legislatures recently, about 10 days ago in the state of New York, have passed or are introducing laws expanding abortion up up to and including the eve of birth. This New York law called the Reproductive Health Act, passed on January 22nd, now says that instead of limiting abortion to the first 24 weeks, abortion may be performed at any time under the pretense of the health of the woman. It grants non-doctors, for the first time ever, permission to perform abortions. It decriminalizes the taking of human life after those 24 weeks, even up until the eve of birth, by removing this law from the criminal code. So a person who coerces a woman to get unpregnant after 24 weeks, or a doctor who botches an abortion resulting in a tortured live birth, is no longer facing criminal sanctions under this New York statute that was signed by the governor. Speaking of that, just as shocking was the celebratory tone of the whole affair, including the governor of New York, who has publicly claimed to be Catholic, who said at the signing ceremony, this is a victory for all New Yorkers. And he declared, and it did happen, that the World Trade Center will be lit up in pink lights to celebrate this expansion of abortions. I don't think the thousands of unborn New Yorkers were celebrating. I'm often asked, why do priests not take a firmer stand in the pulpit and speak out on these issues of pro-life? Well, many fear just the awkwardness, maybe retribution by one or two pro-choice parishioners or the public. Perhaps because this is sometimes a complicated issue, they don't feel they can explain the issue in seven minutes well enough. I hope I can do it in seven or eight. Please bear with me. And also, before I get into a couple comments I would like to make about this new situation, I'd like to say, and I think I speak on behalf of everyone in our parish family, that if you have had an abortion or are struggling with this issue, or if you are just carrying the burden or suffering of an unwanted pregnancy now or in the past, we at St. Basil's, we want you to know that we do care for you. And in our church, there are many organizations to help women with health care and with childbearing and child rearing. Maggie's Place, just over in um, Garfield Heights. Womankind, which many of our parishioners help out and volunteer time and efforts for. They are here to help women with an unplanned pregnancy. And if anyone calls us or our rectory, I can name at least 20 people I can immediately contact who would drop everything to help a woman 
who's facing a crisis pregnancy. So what I'm about to say is not about judging women or judging others or hurting women's health. As Christians, you and I, all of us as Christians, need to be willing at times to be a sign of contradiction, to stand up for the simple truth that life is sacred, especially the life of those who are most vulnerable. In today's gospel, rather strangely, the people seem to not be able to accept that Jesus is bringing them simple news of the fulfillment of God's love for the weak, for the blind, for prisoners, for the vulnerable. After an initial uh, positiveness, they start to say, who is he to proclaim the good news, to represent God? This is just the local kid. This was the beginning of the people's inability to accept Christ's very stark, powerful message that to love God and to love our neighbor is a full-time occupation, a calling that we can never turn away from. Why did they do that? I don't know, the hardness of their hearts. Some may say, who are we to proclaim the gospel of life and challenge the will of the people of New York? I'll say it, we are people of love. As St. Paul writes about in Corinthians, it's love that demands that we speak the truth to our neighbors. Love doesn't seek its own interests, says St. Paul. It is not quick-tempered. It does not brood over injury. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So it is actually with joy that I deliver this message. But one reason I wanted to speak about this today is that we should not get caught up in the debate and the anger over whether to excommunicate the purportedly Catholic politicians who have voted for this expansion of abortion. That is for higher authorities, higher pay grade than you and I to decide. The New York Reproductive Health Act, by going way beyond Roe versus Wade, is yet another example of what Bishop Schaffenberger of Albany, which is the diocese where the state legislature is, is headquartered, has said that this is the result of aggressive extremism and the failure of politicians, especially Catholic politicians, to do the morally right thing. In the award-winning play and movie, A Man for All Seasons, St. Thomas More, who stood up to Henry VIII's disobedience to church teaching, is accused by Cardinal Wolsey that if More could have just seen the facts without that horrible moral squint and be more accommodating to the majority view at that time, he would have been a great statesman. Thomas More replies, well, I believe when statesmen forsake their own private conscience for the sake of their public duties, they lead their country by a short route to chaos. So what to do? I think what's important is each one of us today not just go out and recite church teaching, but to remind ourselves and then share with others the reasons why abortion is wrong and why the New York abortion law is an attack on all citizens of our great country. I'd like to make three points. First, these are things I believe that the legislature has cast aside or forgotten. First, that the human being is a person at all stages of life. Where do I get that? Well, it can be as simple as Dr. Seuss in Horton Hears a Who, 
A person is a person, no matter how small. Pro-choice people say the fetus is life, but it's not a human person. It can't do anything. It has an undeveloped nervous system, maybe not even a heartbeat yet. That doesn't occur till five and a half weeks. But it's not conscious. It's just a clump of cells. But science, apart from religion, has proven that if a zygote or a fetus have the singular sole purpose of becoming an adult human, nothing else, the fetus will only become a human person, not a giraffe, not a zebra, a unique person. Science shows that the heart starts beating at about 22 days and the fetus can feel pain at about 20 weeks. You know, this is supported by Scripture because in even today's first reading, God tells Jeremiah that he knew Jeremiah when he was in his mother's womb. He sanctified him and called him to be a prophet. If by an abortion, Jeremiah would have been killed in the womb, it would have been a specific person, Jeremiah, who God knew. Maybe his mother didn't know his name yet, but God had already named him. God planned it. It's the same with John the Baptist, who was given his name before he was born and was able to recognize Jesus while he was in the womb of Elizabeth. So God doesn't wait until a baby moves or becomes completely ready for life outside the mother. Before he knows it, he loves it and recognizes it as a human person. Why shouldn't we do the same? The argument for limiting abortion based on the early fetus being a non-person has completely failed. First, it was based on the fallacy that I just said, that the early fetus is less worthy because it's less sentient or less aware of being a human. Second, we can now see that the fallacy was never really believed in the first place. Those same people making the arguments have now ignored that to expand abortion up until the eve of birth. What's next? Removal of prohibitation of infanticide? If a baby that has been born overburdens or dangers the career or health of her mother? Killing disabled children or the elderly who no longer have a quality of life? The second thing they cast aside, that our country was founded on inalienable rights. Inalienable means that these are rights that don't come from the legislature or from me or you. They come from God. They are inherent to being a human person. And we know the number one right is the dignity of life, that we're given all the gift of life. That comes first. And then liberty. Freedom, not to be free of caring about anybody else, not to be free just to pursue pleasure, but freedom for something beyond ourselves, for meaning, and to not be treated as a clump of cells, and not to be treated as a slave or a piece of property like those embryos at university hospitals. And a woman, a woman has the inalienable right of her liberty and freedom, but no person should be allowed to kill someone because he or she wants to be rid of the demands that the person places on them. Life always takes precedence over liberty. And then there's the inalienable right to pursue happiness or the good. We could debate all day what that means, but it is also subordinate to life and liberty. And, fi and finally, the other thing that seems to be rejected by this legislature 
in New York and possibly in the future laws being proposed down in Virginia is that individual rights or fundamental rights like privacy or free speech or religion or who I identify with can actually trump life. No, they were never meant to be that way. The Bill of Rights was never meant to trump or, or to, be, uh, to govern the rights in the Declaration of Independence to liberty, life, and happiness. Cardinal Bernardin in Chicago always argued for a consistent ethic of life, that we don't just focus on one issue, that there is a seamless garment that protects the poor, the immigrants, and the unborn. But I don't know if he would force that on us so strongly today in the light of this law. Because without life, there's not even a chance for economic justice, for citizenship, or equality of opportunity, is there? The bishops of New York, our church agrees on this one point. There may be people who are angry at this position or feel we're being divisive or we're ignoring a mother's right to control her body or health care. I just say, enough. Stop it already. Love demands that we take care of the most vulnerable among us first. Christ demands that we remain in love by remaining in the truth. But some may say, well, a majority of people voted for this. Doesn't our Constitution require governing by the governed? Our Constitution requires more than consent of the governed. It needs to be based on truth, truth outside of you and me, those inalienable rights, the reality that all life is sacred or no life is sacred. I mentioned the bishop in Albany who said this is a result of aggressive extremism. And he says, this extremism comes from flawed thinking based on, you can probably name it, our instant gratification culture, laws and movements being pushed upon us by spontaneous emotion without really thinking of the consequences or long-term effects, and radical autonomy. No one can tell me what to do with my body. There's another cause. The idea that all morals, all religion is strictly private. This so-called rule that says Catholic, Catholic politicians have no right to impose their views on laws meant for a majority of people that are not Catholic. I think Colonel Potter on MASH would say horse hockey. Bishop Robert Barron pointed out that privatized religion, one that never incarnates itself in the community with gestures, behavior, and moral commitments, rapidly disappears. Convictions never expressed degrade into just pious niceties and eventually disappear. So what to do? First, the reason I'm talking to you, the choir, who already know most of this, is because we need to wake up and educate ourselves and our children to remember that objective truth does exist outside of our self-centered focus on pleasure or career or wealth or even boredom. It's why we have the Bible, God's external objective revelation to us. We also need to dig into our own understanding and remember that freedom is not from things that are hard or difficult. Freedom is for something greater than ourselves. To pursue the really meaningful goods of life is not found in instant gratification or spontaneous emotions or autonomy. Freedom is found in love. Love is the source of all meaning. 
But how can we encounter love if we don't come to receive him every week? Or if we don't try to plant the seeds of love in our own lives? The psychologist Jordan Peterson says, we can't judge the world fully until we've taken care of our own house and put our own house in order. And as a priest amidst this crisis in our church, I would totally agree with that. Finally, courage. It takes courage to be obedient to some external truth and objective truth outside of ourselves, to church teaching. It takes courage to be countercultural when necessary in a nonviolent way, to engage in, confront, in confrontation, to be willing to assert your belief. It's not easy. Then finally, take action, vote. We have to stand up nonviolently and be heard. St. John Paul II said at the very beginning of his papacy, do not be afraid. The time may come when we no longer have a chance to speak. Above all, hope and trust in the Lord, as today's psalm says. God is our refuge and strength. He will be always with us. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org, or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church, Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us.